Amber Alert for a little girl in Saskatchewan has been expanded into... We were sitting outside, we heard him shooting. He's now facing 15 charges. In eight of Canada's 13 provinces and territories, crime is up. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Shelley. And welcome to another episode of True North Crime, the podcast where we talk about Canadian true crime and law sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Only sometimes. Only sometimes. And we're going to start off today with some news. First time we've actually had, I guess, an update to deliver. Yeah, so it was that voyeurism episode we did. Yeah, well, we talked about the Queen Street voyeur. Um, we brought up the case of this school teacher in London, Ontario, who was filming women's breasts with a pen. With a pen. Yeah, and... This case went all the way to, to the Supreme Court, we mentioned at the time, and he has been found guilty of voyeurism by the Canadian Supreme Court. I wish we had, we, I wish we could put like a gavel sound in there, like guilty. <laughs> like the or dun, maybe dun, the, the uh, law and order. Or yeah, or the law and order sound. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I'm pleased with this decision. I think Same. it's, yeah, it's, it's the right decision, let's say because never mind the fact that the guy is just a total creeper to begin with like not cool what like so what you read a little bit more about this ruling so what was the actual like what was this based on what was this decision predicated on well essentially i mean we talked about the upskirt videos and why this was any different and so on and it's basically because boobs are out there and skirts are covered by cooch or skirts are cooches are covered (laughs) by skirts and so on and so forth i think that was the premise um, and essentially this judge said that wearing that the uh, 27 female students wearing low cut or close fitting tops and um, those shots were taken at angles that captured more of their breasts than it would be visible if the students were recorded head on. Okay. So like, I guess the opposite of an upskirt, a down shirt video. Yeah. Yeah. That, or, you know, just otherwise being more revealing and therefore the privacy was then, I guess, Violated. broken. Yeah. Violated. Yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. yeah, update. Hooray for us. Mm. Long distance high five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready to get into this week's case? Uh, I don't know. Am I? You are. Yeah. I have decided that you are, in fact. Okay. Right. All right, let's do this shit. So this week we are talking about what I have called the Burnaby Jehovah's Witness murder. And we start back in the 1970s. Kim Evans met Jim Kostelniuk. Sorry, I was going to be like, back in the 1970s, disco was great. (laughs) Set the scene for us. Yes, disco was great. Star Wars had been released. (laughs) Uh, That was at the very end. This was earlier than Star Wars because I was 77. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. All right, you you go. You forgot who you were talking Your turn. Yeah. (laughs) You said 70s. I went with 70s. (laughs) All right. So Kim Evans met Jim Kostelniak when she was only 18. He was 25. They met at a friend's house and he was looking for a Jehovah's Witness girlfriend. Uh, Jim had converted to Jehovah's Witness and he was making an effort to sort of to live his faith, I guess. Uh, And Kim was, I believe, a second generation Jehovah's Witness. She was raised in the church and didn't really know anything else. So it seemed like a good fit. They married in 1973, which was a year after they met, uh, and they were together for six years, but it wasn't a great marriage. Kim stayed at home, managing the household and mothering their two children while Jim worked, and she was often depressed. Jim wasn't the ideal witness husband According to witness doctrine, the man is the spiritual head of the family, but Jim had started to have misgivings about his adopted faith, mm-hmm. and his dissatisfaction and doubts threatened to pull Kim and the children away from the church. I'm always curious as to like what is the are the misgivings like? What's the first sign? Like you were attracted to this faith for a reason. So, like, what are the first signs of misgivings? Like, I'm always curious about that stuff. Well, I can tell you what it was for Jim. Okay. Oh, perfect. There Thank you go. You. Okay. So, in Wait, 19- are you giving me information, background information about the, the crime? <laughs> I am. Oh, wow. 
my God. 1975 was meant to be a big year for the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. Witness doctrine interprets war as chaos, and chaos can trigger Armageddon, which will then bring about Christ's kingdom. So this is a good thing. Um, the Vietnam War was interpreted as the catalyst for Armageddon, but instead of the end times, the end of the Vietnam War signaled instead a new era of, I guess, relative peace. And uh, this wasn't the first time a potential day of reckoning came and went, and for Jim, it only increased his doubts about his faith. So over the years, you know, these sort of doomsday is declared. And this right. is sort of like... I guess almost something to be celebrated by the witnesses because they're really, um, they're living for the end times and then for Christ's kingdom um, in which they'll live in paradise. Right. That kind of thing. And so you see this with other religions where they sort of decide this is the end date and then that date comes and goes and it's like, well, now what? No, but not that calendar, our calendar. (laughs) Or they just, you know, there's another, there's a way to recalculate or reassess or what have you. Anyway, so for Jim, this was a big sign that, you know, maybe the the Jehovah's Witnesses didn't have all the answers. Right. Um, So he tried to talk to Kim about his misgivings, but she refused to have a discussion about witness doctrine. So about this, you know, end day that came and went. Uh, and instead of talking to her, she told him to take his doubts to the church elders. Uh, and that didn't really go over very well. Well, why would it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, Kim herself, she went to see the elders and they told her it was better to be a single woman than be married to a non-believer. Wow. So, yeah, it's important to understand that the church uh, makes decisions about marriage and divorce. And initially, the church had approved Jim and Kim's marriage. Um, and now it seems like they were approving of their separation and eventual divorce. So Jim decided to leave the witnesses in 1978. And this meant an end to his marriage and a relationship with his kids. Wow. Because JWs believe, well, uh, that their children would be better off dead than raised by an unbelieving parent. That's pretty hefty for him to leave because he would know that he's leaving everything. Yeah, and he knew this. He knew mm. what he was giving up. But I guess it's sort of better. I mean, she was really devoted to the faith and he really respected that about her. But he just, he couldn't live a lie, I guess. Mm. So understood what he was giving up. Right. Um, so they split. Kim said she would find a new father and a spiritual role model for their kids. Um, So because Jim had lost his faith, he was excommunicated, or in witness terms, disfellowshipped. Uh, And after someone is disfellowshipped, they are shunned by the witness community. Mm -hmm. So people who are friends, now they won't talk to you. They won't even look at you. Wow. So you are completely ostracized from this community you once belonged to. I really can't imagine how terrible that must be. Well, I mean, it also depends on what community he went back to as well, like what support he got. I mean, it would always suck, I think, leaving that community for sure. Mm -hmm. But also, like, if he could go back to his other family or his, um, like, his, like, a friend group prior to him going into that community, that would also be. Because he was a convert, you know, he would have had um, uh, a social group outside of the Jehovah's Witness community. They're very tight-knit, though, so there's a good chance. They don't... Witnesses don't like it when their members socialize with people who aren't witnesses. Mm -hmm. So it's likely he would have um, severed ties with his social network after joining the church. Yeah, but sometimes you can go back to that, and sometimes you can't. I just hope for his sake that he could. Yes. Uh, and he, like he does, he go he, he meets somebody, he marries, he resettles in a different part of the country. This is all in Burnaby. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I mentioned that. Uh, okay. So as for Kim, her parents split up when she was a kid and she saw how difficult life in the church was for an unwed woman and mother. Mm-hmm. Divorced women exist outside of the church's power structure. They're stigmatized 
uh, Kim didn't want that to happen to her because she saw how hard it was for her mom. Right. Um, so she might have been maybe a little bit over eager to meet someone new and find in him the perfect witness husband who right. would give her the perfect witness life. Mm. Um, so Kim and Jim's divorce was finalized in 1980. And in May of that year, Kim went on a church sponsored retreat in Maui. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Aloha. <laughs> exactly. So in Maui, she stayed at a and b that catered to witnesses. And on the morning of her arrival, she met a man named Jeff Anderson. Mm-hmm. And they spent pretty much the whole week together. Supervised. Of uh, course. Of course. And at the end of the week, Anderson declared his love for Kim. Aww. He said he would. How sweet. I know, right? What every woman wants to hear. Uh, he said he would move to Canada so they could continue their relationship. Anderson was originally from Texas. But well, that's your first warning sign first right there. red flag. What, that he's from Texas? <laughs> and that he wants to just move to Canada all of a sudden? Like, does he know a lot about the place? Well, okay, so here's the story on Anderson. He... Not to say that I don't love my own country. I'm just saying it's odd. Yeah. A man from Texas is just like, I love you so much. Fuck Texas. Right. Well, the thing is, he's li- he's actually living in Maui when he met Kim. Oh, okay. Having fled there because he was wanted in Technos for shoplifting. Oh, five finger discount. Right. So Kim didn't know about that, of course. She also didn't know that he had little more than the three hundred dollars than three hundred dollars to his name and the clothes on his back. Hmm. So, like when I say he fled to Hawaii, I'm yeah. not kidding. Yeah. Uh, so Kim returned to Burnaby, but she and Anderson, they stayed in contact and they had this sort of long distance relationship. Uh, they called all the time. They wrote letters to each other. Uh, and then Anderson left Maui to settle in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, and he told Kim he found a job, quote, in business. (laughs) And on weekends, he'd cross into Canada to visit Kim and her children. And so, you know, they kept the relationship going. He sort of not necessarily made good on his pledge to move to Canada, but certainly moved a lot closer to Canada. Right. Maybe he wanted to just get his feet wet. Exactly. He proposed over the phone in (laughs) 1981. That's that's dedication, I guess. (laughs) I get like. It really is a long-distance relationship. I'm not sure why he couldn't propose on one of his weekends in Canada, but there you have it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess we, we weren't a party to that, so hey, yeah. whatever. Anyway, so he proposed on, so on the phone. He proposed over the phone. She said yes. Uh, they were married in Houston, which is where he's from and where his mother still lived. Right. So if a wedding sets the stage for the marriage to come, then Kim's second marriage wasn't looking too good. Anderson was late to his own wedding, and when he got there, and she, you know... Berated him? Well, I wouldn't say berate, but certainly was displeased with his tardiness. (laughs) He yelled at her, and he didn't have any rings. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right? So, yeah, off to a great start. About a week later, things really took a turn, Anderson had led Kim to believe that he had, like, this whole life in Houston. Mm-hmm. His only job was casual employment at a radio station. And he'd been living with his mother. So, not really, like, an independent kind of guy. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh, and no money, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, at all. Kim had to pay for the family to move into an apartment. So she, it's like, not only is she dipping into her own savings, she has to start dipping into her, to her kids. Exactly. Yeah. Right? To support herself and her new husband, who is supposed to be the breadwinner, essentially. Well, and why is he? He's not to supposed to be the breadwinner. He's supposed to have a life. He's supposed to have a life. But I think still, like, for her, she was... Under the impression, Under the I don't impression know if the facts be. necessarily make him seem like a breadwinner. I just think that maybe definitely more than he was. Well, no, he had led her to believe that he had a job a and money and could support them. Yes. And it was just a big fat lie. Right. 
Um, so in addition to being a big fat liar, he was also abusive and controlling. Uh, he was not a devout witness as he had led her to believe. And he in fact used Kim's faith against her. So a wife is supposed to be submissive to her husband and she owes him sex. Kim never much liked sex. Uh, Jim was conscious of that and respectful of that. Anderson didn't care. He raped her and threatened to tell the church elders about her resistance. How she wasn't fulfilling her duties as a wife. Yeah. So he's disgusting. Yeah. Uh, Anderson's control extended beyond the bedroom. He dictated everything. The shopping, the cleaning, what the kids wore, where they went. And they're still in Texas at this time, right? They're still in Texas at this time, yes. Um, So Kim is pretty much living in hell. Yeah. Uh, but she couldn't really do anything about it because he could. was the man of the house, right? He's in charge. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, plus, she'd already been divorced once, and you need a really good reason to go to the elders to grant you a divorce. Um, just coercive control and marital rape wouldn't cut it. No, that's generally a lot of religions are like that. Yeah. Six weeks into their marriage, Kim left. Good for her. She borrowed some money and she flew back to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, she first settled in Calgary, then returned to Burnaby. Um, and back home in Burnaby, she met with the elders there. She explained to them what that she had been duped, that Anderson wasn't the man that he had said. Uh, moreover, she suspected him of molesting her children. Oh, he's a real fucking winner. Oh, yeah. The elders told her that she didn't have any proof. She had nothing to back up her allegations of... To be fair, she didn't. Nope, she didn't. But at the same time, like, you know, she's not... She's an honest woman. She's not coming to them just because she doesn't like her husband. I'm just saying that if they they have a true bias against women anyway, which they seem to do, mm -hmm. they're going to... Like, they're just... And without actual evidence, they're just going to deny it because it's also, I mean, it's more of a hassle for them than anything else. Well, it's not so much about being a hassle. I think it's just, um, but they suggested to her when she went to the elders to complain about Anderson, they suggested that she might be the problem Mm. and not him, that she's simply too headstrong. Oh. Right? Uh, And Kim had an obligation to make the marriage work. That's just how it is. Mm Mm-hmm. So, scared of being cast out, Kim invited Anderson to join her in Canada. And things might have been good for, like, a day or two. <laughs> and then everything just like started their marriage. back again. <laughs> yeah, so he's violent, he's verbally abusive, and now she is sure that he is molesting her daughter. Uh, Kim tried hard to be a good wife, uh, and in 1984... She again met with the elders so this is a few years later now to ask for a separation. Anderson also met with the elders. And she, so she's telling the elders about how he's abusive. He's telling the elders that she's lying, that she makes up stories. Right. And so at the end of the day, the elders essentially kind of gave Kim shit for not being a dutiful wife. Wow. And as punishment for her insubordination, she was forbidden from pioneering or, like, going door-to-door. So this kind of proselytizing, it's important to witnesses, and it's a big part of the religion, and Kim absolutely loved doing it. Right. So to take that away from her is, like, you know, a pretty severe punishment. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who actually invites Jehovah's Witnesses in just to get into scientific debates with them. Oh, God. (laughs) Yes, actually. (laughs) You you and I both know this person. (laughs) Those poor people. I know. And it's just one of those things where he's like, I'm like, why are you late? He's like, oh, I was talking to some Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm like, what? Like, like, you're an atheist. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's exactly why I invited them into my house. (laughs) I was just like, oh, my God. No, I just do the polite thing. I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. I get. I, I 
I got a Japanese exchange student to answer the door for me because I just wanted to go. Terrible. I'm a terrible person, I know. And I told her exactly what it was all about. And she was just like, okay. And I was like, you go for it. Oh, my God. Oh, you're a bad person. Okay. (laughs) July 1984. Kim decides to meet with a social worker. And the social worker, unsurprisingly, told her to leave Anderson immediately, if not for her sake, then for the sake of the children. Mm-hmm. So on July 21st, while Anderson was taking a shower, Kim hustled the kids out the door. She took the car and she went to her friend's house. Mm-hmm. Anderson reported her as a runaway wife. Wow. So again, the elders are consulted and again, they side with Anderson But this time, Kim refused to comply with the church elders. Um, She did return home, and Anderson had to move out. She wouldn't let him control her anymore. Right. So he does what any reasonable person would do. He starts stalking her. Uh, This was so bad, Anderson's mother visited Burnaby in the hopes of talking him into just returning to Houston. Just giving it all up. And just leaving like, everything behind. what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She begged him to leave Canada, but he refused. He said he simply, he had to get back together with Kim. Um, this is going downhill fast. Yeah. So in the spring of 1985, uh, Anderson answered a newspaper ad for a 357 Magnum. Oh, oh the newspaper ad. I didn't even know there were, like, I didn't think you could buy a gun off of a, what year was this? 85. What, like, wow, that doesn't seem that long ago for something so extreme. Yeah, anyway. Like, like a Magnum, like, like maybe even a hunting rifle, but a Magnum? No, like just a big ass handgun. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So this, this was the same kind of gun that he owned in Texas. So, but the owner refused to sell it to him because Anderson didn't have a firearms acquisition certificate. Essentially a license. Yeah. Uh, So he couldn't buy this handgun, so he buys a shotgun illegally for a hundred bucks and proceeds to saw off the barrel. Uh, He loaded it and then stored it under his bed. And then he sat down to write a letter to Kim's mother and stepfather. Uh Uh-oh. So when was that? That was in the spring. In August, Anderson left Burnaby for a three-week motorcycle ride or motorcycle journey, tour, trip of the southwestern United States. While he was away, his apartment flooded. And when the caretaker went down there, because he lived in the basement, to inspect the damage, he found the shot-off shotgun under the bed. The caretaker was also a Jehovah's Witness. Mm -hmm. He didn't go to the police. He went to the elders. For fuck's sake. So when Anderson got back, the elders confronted him about the gun. At first, he said he needed it for self-defense. Nobody was buying that. So he then said that he'd been thinking about suicide. Uh, He demanded that they return his gun. And the elders, they gave it to the police. Mm -hmm. Well, at least they got that right. At least, right? The first smart thing they did. (laughs) On August 24th, 1985, Anderson went out and purchased another shotgun and again sawed off the barrel. So, you know, not to at be first, If at first you don't succeed, succeed right? Exactly. So that was August 24th. On August 25th, an RCMP constable showed up at Anderson's apartment to question him about the original shotgun. Anderson told him that he was American and didn't know he needed a license to purchase and own a gun in Canada. Mm. Um... When the constable asked him why he sawed off the barrel, which is a crime, mm-hmm. Anderson said it made it easier to handle. Like, come on, guy. Um, so, the, you know, the Mountie explained to him that it is, in fact, illegal to saw off the barrel of a shotgun. He should know this because it's a crime in the States as States. well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's, he told him that he'd be checked. He'd be looking into him. Uh, so the constable did contact 
Texas. I don't know who or what in Texas. Just, just the whole state. Just, hello, Texas. Hi, uh, Texas. <laughs> I got something you want. <laughs> Free to bet. I'll take it. Um, so, see, like, so Trudeau is worried. He does try to follow up. Um, but for whatever reason, he doesn't get any information on Anderson, even though he, like, had this warrant once upon a time for shoplifting. Right. So the constable, I guess he's sort of satisfied, and he never actually, like, follows up with Anderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just kind of gets the cold shoulder from Texas, and that's the end of that. Right. Four days later, so this is August 29th, 1985, Anderson finished the letter that he started writing back in the spring, the one to Kim's mother and stepfather. Mm-hmm. It was a suicide note. In it, he said he was sorry for the, quote, terrible things I've done. He complained about how tormented he was because of Kim's indifference towards him. To him, it seemed like Kim was enjoying her freedom and rubbing his face in it. Right. At the end of the letter, he stated he didn't think he deserved to live and that he wouldn't want to without Kim. Um, so he finishes the letter then he phones Kim, and when she picks up the phone, he immediately hangs up. So essentially, he's just checking to see if she's home. Yeah. He picks up his gun and walks over to Kim's apartment. He lives, like, across the street. Oh, fun. Yeah. So it made the stalking and harassment a so lot much easier. easier. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, finding the door unlocked, he let himself in. Kim was in the kitchen on the phone with her mom. He pointed the gun at her, and when she noticed, he, she said to her mother, I have to go, there's a gun in my face, mm-hmm. and then hung up the phone. Her mother immediately calls 911. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anderson wanted Kim to go into the bedroom, and she refused, thinking that he'd probably try to rape her. Right. Uh, he claimed he only wanted to talk, but Kim stayed her ground. She wouldn't leave the kitchen. Um, Anderson went search of the kids. He found them in another bedroom. Um, they were scared, obviously. He told them not to worry, that nobody would get hurt. Um, Kim asked him to let the kids leave. So, like, whatever problem there was, they could yeah. sort it out just the two of them. He said no. Uh, then the phone rang, and it was the police. Anderson, uh, told the cop on the phone he didn't want any police around. Uh, the cops tried to reason with him to help him find a way out of the situation, but Anderson was spiraling. They actually talked on the phone for quite some time. The phone was being passed back and forth between Anderson and Kim. Um, like, how long was this call? Do you know? I think, I want to say around at least, like, 11 to 15 minutes. Something like that. That's very specific. Yeah. Because there is, like... There's actually a really good timeline for the series of events. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually had like there, there's even sort of like a transcript of this phone call. And so the cop says to Anderson, we'd like to settle things, you know, we'd like to help you out if we can. And then Anderson says, I don't think you can. It's reached a desperate situation. Mm-hmm. So just an indication of sort of a state of mind. Uh, eventually Anderson threatened to shoot everybody if the cops just didn't back off. He told him to stay away, and then he hung up. Uh, Anderson ordered everybody into the bedroom. And for an hour, he just raged at Kim and just berated her, said all kinds of terrible things to her. Um, he told her that he loved her, that their separation was hurting him. He wanted them to get back together. Uh, he then asked her if she had ever loved him. And she says, not since Houston. Mm -hmm. Ouch. Yeah. She asked her, or sorry, he asked her for a hug and she couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Didn't want to touch this guy. Well, with good reason. With good reason, right? Uh, so he shoots her just like that. And then he shot the kids. Which we all know probably because of the note that this was going to come anyway. Yeah. But, you know, anybody would hope that there'd be a way to defuse the situation. Oh, true enough. 
But, so he shoots Kim. He shoots the kids in cold blood. And then what does he do? He puts the gun on the kitchen table and leaves the house. Couldn't even, didn't have the courage to shoot himself. So, of course, the house is surrounded by police. They immediately arrest him. And one of the cops at the scene admits to having said out loud, I wish he'd turned the gun on himself. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't have to deal with this asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Jim has, has resettled in Winnipeg by this point. And so, of course, he has to be notified about what just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so he... I think he like he goes out to Burnaby for the funeral and just to make everything so much worse for him he's shunned at his children's funeral it's awful they wouldn't look at him they wouldn't talk to him nothing it's like he's not even there and it's like the fucking church's fault as well yeah totally so that's just it's so heartbreaking Mm -hmm. As for Anderson, he blamed everyone but himself for what he had done. Of course, nothing's his fault. He bl- initially he blamed the church and low bl- low blood sugar. Hmm. Uh, I most, mean, I get hangry, but right, not murderous. Yeah. Most of all, he blamed Kim for his depression and his misery. Right. Um. Anderson was found guilty of three counts. Of first degree murder on December 4, 1986, uh, which means no parole for 25 years. Uh, less than a year into his sentence, Anderson wrote a letter to Jim, and the two started corresponding. Anderson was sorry for what he'd done, and Jim was hoping that he might one day be able to forgive him. So their letters back and forth, they were very honest, they were very raw, therapeutic in a way as well. Um, and then in 1989, a federal parole officer suggested to Jim that Anderson might be using him. And it was possible that Anderson was trying to manipulate Jim to get more privileges or maybe an early release through the faint hope clause. (coughs) Um, but Jim, he kept up the correspondence with Anderson, despite having been warned because Anderson's. Um, he was getting privileges in prison. Uh, three years later, Anderson, or sorry, Jim went to meet Anderson in prison. And this is something that Anderson had been angling for, for a while, for a face to face. Mm -hmm. He had also wanted the media present. Oh, because everything he does is just so self-serving. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he, he gave a jailhouse interview shortly after I think his sentencing mm-hmm. uh, and in the interview I tried to find it I couldn't uh, but in the interview again it's very like it's sort of like he's the victim oh yeah nice. it's, uh, it's so disgusting uh, so Anderson wants the media present when he meets Jim Jim said no face to face Anderson said to Jim so awful Quote, you know, as for victims, I've got the best, end quote. What? So, what? I, yeah, okay, so here's here's my interpretation. I think he meant Jim mm. um, because, you know, he's willing to correspond and they sort of have this, like, weird relationship. But he also could have been talking about Jim's children. Yes. It was a high-profile multiple murderer, and it earned Anderson some screen time. Right. Uh, and as I said, he did this jailhouse interview in 1987 in which he explained that he'd been wronged. Even when he had a gun, Kim right. was still rejecting him. Yeah. So. Ugh, okay. Oh, we've heard these arguments before. Yeah. It's like, there's like, so, there's just so many sad examples on the internet of this, this day, these yeah. days. Um, okay, so for two or three more years, the correspondence continued and then eventually the tone of Anderson's letters changed. Instead of writing about guilt and remorse, Anderson was now excited about his new and better prison accommodations. Uh, and then sort of Jim kind of turned a corner and he realized mm. he couldn't forgive Anderson because he said forgiveness would lessen Anderson's guilt. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought that was actually a really interesting uh, statement. That is interesting. Because you always hear about like people finding forgiveness in their hearts for um, killers and you know attackers and villains in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I just like this idea that forgiveness would lessen uh, the guilt of the guilty party. Mm-hmm. And Anderson, of course, was guilty. He was guilty of murdering. And as it turns out, he was, in fact, molesting the kids the and kids. so on. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, and raping his ex-wife. And raping his wife. Yeah. He's like, he's a guilty motherfucker. Yeah. Anderson denies having admitted the, uh, the molestation to Jim. But everybody believes that he admitted it and that he did it. Right. Okay. So 15 years into his sentence, Anderson could apply for early parole. This is the faint hope clause. Anticipating this, Jim wrote to the federal justice minister at the time asking for the faint hope clause to actually just be stricken yeah. from the legislation. Um, it wasn't removed from the criminal code, but it was changed to make it more difficult for murderers to get early release. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim then wrote a book about what happened to Kim and her children, including the allegations of molestation. It's called Wolves Among Sheep. And it was released around the time Anderson could apply for early parole. So in an interview, Anderson said that he wouldn't, in fact, apply for the early parole. Hmm. Quote, after a lot of thinking, I've decided not to apply for it. I really don't think it's worth putting not only myself, but others through that meat grinder again. End quote. Right? Uh, Sounds noble. (laughs) Really? He was worried about the parole board bringing up. The pedophilia. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly what happened when Anderson applied for early day parole in 2009. Uh, Anderson told the parole board he pressured and manipulated the church elders into telling Kim she was scripturally obligated to take him back. So, you know, admitting to some guilt, I suppose. Um, To manipulating the church. Yes. Yes. Um, and during his hearing, he admitted to planning the murders ahead of time. Duh. Why else would you buy a shotgun and then saw off the barrel? Twice. Twice. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so Jim was at this parole hearing. He said Anderson had a well-rehearsed narrative for the parole board, but the board, in their wisdom, saw through his bullshit. Mm-hmm. They denied his application, believing the real reason uh, he killed Kim and the kids was to prevent anyone from telling on him. That he was scared people will find out that he was a pedo. Uh, Anderson's motivations were completely self-serving. They were when he killed three people. They were when he reached out to Jim from prison. When he started championing prisoners' rights, he became like a prisoner's advocate, essentially. Oh, nice. Um, But it's all self-serving. But it's all self-serving, right? Um, And think he will be at the 25 years you know we're sort of i think have we passed it now even 1980 what did i say six mm, something like that so i mean it's unlikely that he will in fact ever get paroled which is yay comforting <laughs> in a way because this guy he's not sorry no not at all and so that's the story of the what did i call it Burnaby Jehovah's Witness murder. Huh. Yeah. And so I really like commend Jim for he's been very uh, active, active and very open about the experience um, and sort of what Kim went through and what he went through and all that stuff. So good on him. Yeah. Well, from a law perspective, do you want to know more about the faint hope clause? I sure do. You sure do. Sure do. (laughs) So, it's the popular name for S.745.6. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, (laughs) exactly, of the Canadian Criminal Code, um, which is a statutory uh, provision. And basically, as you kind of stated before, that if someone has been sentenced to life imprisonment with a parole eligibility period of greater than 15 years, they can apply for early parole once they have served 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. So 
And offenders who have committed their offense after December 2nd, 2011 are no longer eligible to apply for this because the whole thing has been scrapped. Thank goodness. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So it had been, as I'd mentioned, the Fainhope Clause had been changed a little bit. So you ha- it basically you kind of had another trial. It wasn't just like yes. so, sending your case to the parole board. I think a judge had to rule as to so, whether or not you were allowed to... So what? Well, so you just you're you're getting ahead of me. Oh, I'm sorry. Jesus Christ, Rachel! Honestly, fuck. Fucking my part. You've been speaking for like goddamn hours. So keen on early parole. I know, and everybody always never listens to me in this part. I'm sure they all (laughs) skip it anyway. But whatever. Um. So anyway, so a prisoner has to apply to a chief justice of the province where they were convicted, Mm -hmm. and then. Uh, that justice or another another designated judge reviews the application um, to see if there's a chance that the prisoner could be successful in the application um, before a jury. Yeah. So yeah. essentially like a little mini trial. Yeah. So and if basically the applicant is successful, then a jury is... Um, brought together to hear the application. So the jury can hear evidence related to the character of the person, um, the nature of the offense, uh, and that can be like a victim impact statements from the family, mm-hmm. um, basically the person's conduct while they were imprisoned, and anything the judge uh, deems relevant, essentially. Yeah, makes sense. So, and then the jury decides um, if the guy can get, or girl, women, um, person. (laughs) Whomever. Whomever can be eligible uh, if their parole should be reduced. uh, Or their, sorry, their eligibility period should be reduced. And then, um, but it has to be unanimous. Okay, yeah. So, uh, and then essentially of... Um, and, and oh, by the way, if you're convicted of multiple, multiple murders that uh, were committed after 1997, you're not allowed to apply, uh, pretty much for a reduction at all. Oh, okay. Just FYI. Yeah. If so, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> and then when was it, it was actually, so as I said, Jim had, once he decided, you know, Anderson's a terrible person and he should rot in prison for the rest of his days. He had written to the justice minister to get rid of the faint hope clause. Yes. Um, was not successful at the time in lobbying for that to happen, but it did in fact happen. So when was it stricken from the criminal code? Uh, it was stricken from the critical code. Oh, crim- uh, critical <laughs> code. <laughs> um, so essentially like the whole proroguing of government by Harper really delayed the whole thing. Uh, and so- Blah, blah, blah. But oh, essentially, Jesus. It would, the bill was passed in March 2011. Right. Why did he it, do that? Was it to go to the Olympics? Is that what it was? No, it was because they were going to be the first time he prorogued government is because it was he was going to have um, a vote of non-confidence. No yes. And but the second time, I think it was like the same. And then no, he went I to think, the Olympics. I think the second time was for the Olympics. I don't know. Either way, both were total bullshit. Oh, totally. <laughs> that guy was terrible. Um, anyway, so do you know why we had it? To begin with? You hope, yeah. No, actually I don't. <laughs> oh, well, Jesus, someone did their research. Enlighten me, please. So Canada abolished the death penalty in 1976. You know that, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they replaced it with a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment mm-hmm. for first and second degree murder. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm with you. So this provision was basically um, to give people who are convicted a, a, the incentive to rehabilitate, re- rehabilitate themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. And so, you know, and most countries, most other countries allowed convicted murders to be kind of, I guess, paroled after 15-ish years. Mm-hmm. So that that is where it kind of came out. That's why. Okay. So anyway, there you go. Right. And now we don't have it anymore. So if you kill someone, say goodbye to 25 years of your life. Yeah. At minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Rightfully so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting any sympathy for me. No. 
I can't believe the church was so complicit in the whole thing, too. I well, I can't. I can believe know. it, but it's, like, it's terrible. Yeah, it's really upsetting that this woman, like, she tr- she did everything she could, and she was really trying hard to mm-hmm. break free from this guy. And she's just, she's trapped by her faith. And then when she finally did manage to separate herself from this person, she he was still always there in her life puncturing like slashing her tires and shit like this so yeah and just this faith that she loved and celebrated really let her down yeah absolutely yeah awful all right so do you have i have a weird law do you want to do you have a weird crime sure do (laughs) okay so today's weird crime is from indiana where an inmate had escaped from the cops. He's in jail and he like breaks free from the cops and like shuts himself in like a medical closet. Mm-hmm. And when the cops break into the closet, he's gone. He climbed mm. up into the ceiling, oh. but then fell through the ceiling. Oh. <laughs> like, Right in front of everybody, essentially. Oh. Like, right, like, central booking. Like, he lands <laughs> in central booking. <laughs> mm. So, that's my stupid criminal for the week. This moron who thought he could escape through the ceiling. Where was he gonna go? I don't know. It's kind of like the whole <laughs> breakfast club scenario. The breakfast club scenario. When, what's his name? Bender was trying to escape, like, detention. And he's in the ceiling. Doesn't he fall through? He does. I don't know. It's been so long since I've seen that movie. Anyway, so... Bender? That's not his name. No, I don't even know what his name is. Is that Judd Nelson? Yeah. (laughs) Bender? I don't remember. (laughs) Where did that come from? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. What was his name? In the movie? Yes. I I don't know. As I said, I haven't seen it in years. All right. Well, I'm I'm looking this up right now. Okay, you look it up right now. Bud Nelson Breakfast Club. Bender, John Bender. Oh my god! (laughs) Holy crap! Yes. That you were totally making that up. (laughs) Victory. Did you even know? Yeah. Well, obviously something (laughs) like percolated through my brain. So. Oh my god. Okay. Lay it on me. I want to hear this stupid law. Okay. So, Rachel, it's not illegal to own a cow in Newfoundland. That's good to know. I would hope not. There are farmers in Newfoundland, so. But, it is illegal to keep that cow in your house like a pet. Well, shit. (laughs) Where else am I going to keep my cow? Yeah. And also, if you didn't know... Mm-hmm. You cannot drive your cattle through the streets of St. John's, but only after 8 a.m. <laughs> but I can do it before 8 a.m. Yeah, it's it's just a late night thing. Okay. So if I'm driving, if the cows are coming home and they need to cross through St. John's to get there, mm-hmm. it's got to happen before. Yeah, you got to time that. Okay. So cow curfew, essentially, yeah, is what we're talking exactly. about. Exactly. And they can't be in your house. Afterwards. And they can't come into the house. No. Good no. to know. <laughs> oh my god just FYI Uh, let's talk reviews oh yeah we've had some reviews we have and we've been meaning to address this for a little while but we're slack so we're getting to it now (laughs) Mm -hmm. we've been licking our wounds yeah so first we have a couple five star reviews so you want to give a big thanks to take it Um, away I'm checking it out uh, Nizumi 20. Oh, thank you. And Max Kane 2323. Wonderful. Thanks so much, guys. Glad you love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we have uh, one one star review and one two star review. Okay. <laughs> I guess I can't really say thank you for the one. Well, you could because reviews. it's the basis by which we could improve. Indeed. If the people had left a critique that gave us an indication of what we should improve upon. Yeah, we're always happy to try to better ourselves. 
And if you want to leave a one or two star review, you are welcome to do so. But maybe try to be a little bit more constructive in your criticism. If we went wrong somewhere and made a mistake, point it out. Don't to have the facts right or yeah. something else. Like totally, like point it out or uh, go to our Facebook page and tell us what what it was. Yeah, send us an uh, email if you like. We'll get to all of that stuff in a minute. Yeah, uh, but yeah, let us know so we can improve. Yeah, we have. I have, we have no problems with criticism so long as I can do something about it. Yes. But if someone's just like, "You suck." You suck, McBain. That's not help. That's not helpful. You're entitled to your opinion. I'm not go- going to yeah. apologize. And we also like understand it. that this podcast is not for everyone. We laugh. And it's a lot of serious topics. And we yeah. do laugh. So yes. it's just one of those things where if that's not your shtick, then we can just that's, go somewhere else. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so we said get in touch with us if you've got something to say. You can email us at TNC, no, True North Crime Pod at gmail.com. I don't even know our email address. Yeah. You can tweet us at TNC underscore POD. We are True North Crime Pod on Facebook. And I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. Those are the only ways to get in touch with us hmm. at the moment. Smoke signals, I guess. Um, if you're facing the right direction. Uh, thank you for joining us. Hmm. And we will see you back here in a couple of weeks. Hopefully we are committed to trying to turn these out every two weeks. Um, apologize for any delays that might take place. Due to the fact that we don't get paid and we have jobs and lives on the side. (laughs) We got a lot going on. Um, But until next time, stay safe out there. Yeah. Try to to not saw off shotguns. Don't saw off the barrels of your shotguns. Twice.